Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke and that to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began a search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would this word be to us a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And that to show us Christ. Direct our hearts to Christ and give to us a sight of Him that would cause us to move in deeper fellowship with Him and produce greater love and faithfulness to Him. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see that if left to ourselves, we cannot see. Illumine our minds and our thoughts. Since in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Following Mary's purification and Jesus' presentation, Luke provides for us a small window into the childhood of Jesus. Now on this occasion, the family had returned back to Jerusalem for the festivities of the Passover. It was a trip that they had made every year. And the story goes in that the family all went, but not all of them came back. Jesus went missing. The 12-year-old was left behind, in which his parents only realized a day's journey back to Nazareth. And so you can imagine Mary frantic and distraught like any mother. She was overcome with fear. But they made a U-turn. And on the third day, they found the boy Jesus in the temple, sitting and conversing with the scholars of Israel. And what we come to find in the story is that Jesus wasn't left behind, but rather Jesus himself had stayed behind. And to answer to what appears to be a very frustrated mother, is very telling. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see, no one in all of Israel up to that point had ever uttered those words, my father's house. Not Moses who erected the tabernacle, not David who made plans to build the temple, not Solomon who put it all together. You see, at 12 years of age, 
Jesus had come to understand that He was the very Son of God. It, it was a watershed moment in His humanity where His divine paternity was revealed. Now you might be thinking to yourselves, Pastor Danny, did you just preach your whole sermon in less than two minutes? Yes, I did. Wow, can you do that every Sunday? No, I will not. But I say that because most of you have heard this sermon. I preached this particular passage uh, about two years ago. And so if you weren't with us at that time, I would actually highly encourage you to listen to that sermon. It's on our website. Uh, it's under Sunday Sermons, dated June 6th, uh, 2021. What I want to do for us today is draw your focus as to how Luke introduces us to this story and how he concludes it. You'll notice he is telling us something about the Christ. In other words, he's giving us another lesson on Christology. Look with me in verse 40. He gives a short summary of what took place in the infant who had just been circumcised and presented. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then following Luke, he goes on to give us a portrait, a rare look into the growth of Jesus to support his thesis. He tells us the story, which he then concludes in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What he's telling us is that Jesus grew physically and intellectually. That he matured in both body and soul. And that's what I want us to zero in on. Those statements that Luke provides for us in the beginning of this story and the end. And here's the thing. They give us valuable insight, valuable insight into the incarnate deity, the person of Jesus Christ. I do have an outline for you and we'll move rather quickly through the first two points. And we'll spend more time in the last two. But the outline is this. Number one, the mystery of the incarnation. Number two, the tension of the incarnation. Number three, the doctrine of the incarnation. And number four and last, the application of the incarnation. So the mystery, the tension, the doctrine, and the application of the incarnation. If you are ever confused at any point, know that we're just speaking about the incarnation and you'll be okay. Well, we begin with its mystery. One of the most important questions we can ask is this. What is Christianity? What is Christianity? Now, before we can reach any conclusion as to what Christianity is, we have to ask an equally important question. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And we ask that because Christianity comes forth from the person bearing that name. And so who is he? Jesus, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And it was Peter who answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the confession the church has made from the beginning of its inception. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's written for us in the Apostles' Creed. John, he begins his gospel like this. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of his eternity. 
And the Word was with God, referring to His relationship with the Father in unity. And the Word was God, showing His deity. And you see, the mystery of the Incarnation is that the Word, who from eternity is God and was with God, literally face to face with God, has come face to face with us in this world. You see, in Jesus Christ, the infinite became finite. The eternal became temporal. The Word, the Word became flesh. And we find ourselves in deep wonder and amazement when we consider that He who is before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God of true God, woke up in the very middle of the night crying and needing to be fed. That the eternal and sovereign God had to learn how to walk upon the very ground in which He Himself had spoken into existence in the ancient days of creation. You know, many of you know C.S. Lewis, author of the children's novels that take place in Narnia. And in one of them, a character by the name of Lucy says this, In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. To say that the inside is bigger than the outside. And that statement cannot be any more true when it comes to Jesus Christ. That He who holds the universe by the word of His power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, was at the same time lying in the dark womb of a virgin teenager. That's the mystery. That in the person of Jesus Christ, you had deity and humanity. God and man. But you can just visualize the tension, right? And here's our second point. How, how can that be? How can that make any sense? It can sound irrational because it appears to violate the law of non-contradiction. How is it that Jesus Christ can be both infinite yet finite? If Jesus Christ is both deity and humanity, then how did He retain both attributes related to His divine nature and His human nature? Do you see the struggle? What do we know about God? That God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. That God is all-knowing. That He is omniscient. That God is always everywhere. He is omnipresent. That God is never changing. He is immutable. And so what happened then in the Incarnation? How was it that the all-knowing God grew in wisdom? What did He learn that He didn't already know? How is it that the all-powerful God grew in strength? That He who spoke galaxies into existence by the simple word of His power needed to wait until He got stronger to help Joseph, his earthly father, in his father's shop. How is it that God, who is always everywhere, wherein David says in Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. How did that God become localized in time and in space? You see the tension? And for the first 400 years of the church, This was one of the looming questions in which her members sought to answer. How? How was the Word made flesh? 
Well, here's where we get to the meat of this sermon, the doctrine of the incarnation. When we think about the deity and the humanity of Christ, various people in the early church, they offered some answers. The first was a man by the name of Arius, who caused one of the greatest theological crises in the early church. When he questioned the full deity of Christ. He said, like human fathers, God the Father existed before God the Son. That in God's first act of creation, He begat the Son, who then through the Son created all that we see in creation. And so the Son was created to create the world and everything in it. Now I think all of us here are very aware of the problem with that. The Son was never made. He was never a result of creation. You see, in Arius' final analysis of Jesus Christ, He was simply a creature. Now you might be thinking, but isn't the Son begotten from the Father? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Yes, but begotten does not mean to be made. Begotten means to come forth. We cannot confuse the two or else we will be in great, great error. That is heresy of the highest order. Okay, so if begotten doesn't mean made, but coming forth, when in time then did the Son come forth from the Father? Well, that question doesn't work. Because there is no when. There is no time. To ask such a question would be to confine God within time. But church, what do we know of God? That He is eternal. He has no beginning. He just is. He is timeless. And so we confess that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. In other words, there was never a time in which the Son was not the Son, nor was there ever a time in which the Son was not from the Father. He is eternally begotten. And the church that gathered together in Nicaea in 325 AD, they brought the finest Christian thinkers, and here's what they did. They collectively deemed Arius as a heretic. And they wrote out, they wrote out, as to the person of Jesus Christ, very God of very God, or true God of true God, begotten, not made. That statement takes us to the very heart of what it means for the Son to be the Son. He is truly, He is truly deity. He is, as Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 tells us, the very image of the invisible God. And here's the thing. When the Word became flesh, when the Son of God became flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, He didn't become any less of God. The Word didn't cease to be God. The Word is God. He remained perfectly and truly God. And what took place in the Incarnation is that the Son eternally begotten from the Father, very God of very God, took upon Himself a complete human nature with all of its limitations, 
apart from sin, so that God became man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, in the incarnation, He who is truly God was now not only truly God, but truly man. Well, what followed after the attack on the deity of, a Christ, on the deity of Christ was an attack on His humanity. And one of the great errors that was proposed was by a bishop named Apollinaris, who actually fiercely opposed Arius. He was a staunch defender of the deity of Christ. But in his eagerness to defend Jesus' deity, it led him to deny Jesus' humanity. And his understanding of Christ was this, that in the incarnation, the Word took on flesh, in that the Word only took on a human body. The Son took on a human body and a divine soul. Now, if we were to hear that the person of Jesus Christ consisted of a human body and a divine soul, how many of us would think to ourselves, well, that sounds biblically correct, right? Well, the church that gathered half a century later from Nicaea, they declared it heresy in Constantinople. Well, why? It's because the incarnation wasn't the union of full deity and part humanity, not truly God and partly man, but truly God and truly man in body and soul. Anything that gives you less deity or less humanity is no Christ at all. The person of Jesus Christ isn't part divine, part man, or mostly divine, and a little man, or mostly man, and some divine. No, but truly divine and truly man. Perfectly divine and perfectly man. You see, in the incarnation, the Son added to His divine nature. It wasn't a subtraction of His divine nature, as to somehow make room for His human nature. But the Lord added to His divine nature a human nature, so that in Him there were two natures, distinct from each other, human and divine, in the one person, Jesus Christ. Now what is important to know is that in the Incarnation, each nature, each nature retained and kept and preserved its properties. In other words, all the unique properties of both natures, what makes him human, what makes him divine, never ceased. Which is to say that he was never more human and less divine or more divine, less human at any point in his life. There was never a time in the Lord's life when in order to accomplish something, He injected some deity into His humanity. There, there wasn't a kind of fluctuation in His deity and His humanity. But rather, both natures were brought into perfect union, perfect communion in the one person of Jesus Christ. Not two persons, as if Jesus was some kind of divine schizophrenic, but one person, truly human, truly divine. Never to be confused with each other. 
never to be changed into one another, never to be divided from each other, and never to be separated from each other, but brought into union with one another in the person of Christ. And this is what Apollinaris wasn't able to see. Fearing that he would compromise the deity of, the deity of Christ, he believed that Jesus was humanity in body, but deity in soul. That Jesus was part of one and part of the other and not truly one and truly the other. But you see, what the Bible tells us is that Jesus Christ was truly human. He had a real human body. He had a real human soul. And I think this is what Luke wants us to see in his introduction and in his conclusion to this story of the boy Jesus being found in the temple. Look with me in verse 52. That he grew in wisdom and that he grew in stature. Now we can understand his growth physically. As an infant, Jesus woke up in the middle of the night hungry. He had to be nursed and burped and changed. He had to crawl like a baby before he could walk like a man. Jesus went through all the normal stages of physical development. He had to learn how to use his hands and his feet. He went through the stage of a toddler spitting out food he didn't like. He went through the stage of a little boy running through the streets of Nazareth. Then before Joseph and Mary knew it, Jesus was 12 years old. He went through every stage of our humanity But Jesus grew not only physically, but he also grew intellectually. He had a real, a real human soul. And just as his body grew, so did his mind. You see, when Jesus came as a baby, he didn't have the knowledge of everything and anything. His mind was that of a baby. Making out certain colors. Figuring out certain images. Smiling when he saw a familiar face like his mother and father. He had to grow. He had to learn. He had to understand. And he had to observe. And he learned by attending synagogue. He learned from what he was being taught in the Scriptures. And this is, notice, what we find the boy Jesus doing by staying back at the temple. He was asking questions. And he was probing. And he was learning. And so Jesus had a real human body. And he had a real human mind. He grew in wisdom and in strength. But we come back to the question. How is it that Jesus Christ, who is omniscient and all-knowing in His deity, be yet growing in His knowledge, in His humanity? How does that make sense? And the answer is that this is really the mystery that we will never be fully be able to explain. And that because we are finite. We are mortal. We are weak. We are fallen. You see, we will never be able to perfectly grasp the infinite Son of God who took on human flesh and that to every respect. We just know that both are true of the person of Jesus Christ. That He retains the properties of both natures, human and divine. Metaphors fall very short. And metaphors are inadequate. 
But suppose that C.S. Lewis were to write himself into the story of Narnia. Walking around with the children like Lucy and Peter and the others. By writing himself into the story, he would not cease to exist in Oxford. Actually, his entire existence in Narnia would depend on his continued writing on his desk in Oxford. The unity of his person wouldn't necessarily be violated by being both the writer and the character in the story. And it's because Narnia and Oxford are not just different places in the same world like Los Angeles and New York, but they are different realms. They are altogether different worlds. And again, this is just an imperfect metaphor. But there is a difference between the creator entering creation and an author writing himself into a story. But the relationship between God and His created world is much more like Oxford and Narnia than the two cities like New York and L.A. You see, the Son of God can be both infinite in His divine nature and yet finite in His human nature all while remaining one person. Psalm 139, as I referenced earlier, David says of God, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Speaking of God's presence, His presence everywhere. Which is to say that Jesus in His divine nature is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Yet there He was. In place and in time. In Jerusalem. Speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 13. And Jesus says something very interesting, which is revealed in the King James or the New King James translation. He said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. You know what Jesus does there? He speaks of himself as being presently in heaven. While at the same time with Nicodemus on earth. Well, how could he do that? It's because in the person of Jesus Christ, both are true. John Calvin says this, quote, The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang on the cross. Yet He continuously filled the world even as He had done from the beginning. Now when we talk about Jesus, we don't say, oh, His divine nature did this, or look, His human nature did this. No, we always speak about His person. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Which is why the Scriptures speak of the person of Christ as the Son of David, yet David's Lord. An infant, yet the ancient of days. The form of a servant, yet the form of God. Increasing in stature, yet the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lorraine Botner, he's a reformed theologian of the 20th century. He says this, he says, the gospel writers sometimes present him as divine, sometimes human. And not that we are to take the one and leave the other. 
but that we are to accept Him as the divine and human person. He is incarnate deity. He is truly God and truly man. And those two statements are never less true at any point in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Why does it matter that God or that the Son is truly God and truly man? Well, herein lies the application. It's because we would never want anything that is less than Christ, but the whole Christ, the very person of Christ. Coming back to Luke chapter 2, what he is telling us is that this person who grew in wisdom, who grew in stature, is himself Jesus Christ. He is truly and perfectly deity. Truly and perfectly humanity. And you see, when Apollinaris opened up to Luke chapter 2, he couldn't take the words of the gospel writer here at face value. That there was no way in which his mind and his understanding grew. There's no way. But there in the 4th century, there was a key figure. There was a key figure who debated him. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus. And he famously summed up his argument against Apollinaris in this statement. He said this, one statement, that which he has not assumed, he has not sanctified. What was he saying? That Christ assumed not just a part of our humanity, not just body, but all of our humanity, body and soul. And that to sanctify not just a part of me, but all of me. Not just a portion of my humanity, but all of my humanity. Because you see, we need to be atoned for not just the sins of our bodies, but for the sins of our souls. And you see, this becomes clear when we look at a passage like Galatians chapter 5, where Paul lists out the sins of the flesh. And when we observe this list of the sins of the flesh, they are not constrained to the body but also to the soul and to the mind. Enmity, jealousy, envy, anger, which we just heard. So I need a Savior who is truly human, truly divine, to sanctify me of my soul. And that had to be Christ. And if it were not so, he would have been disqualified from being my Savior. Notice Luke not only tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, but look with me in verse 52. That he grew in favor with God and man. That Jesus grew, not only grew physically and intellectually, but that he grew in favor with God. In other words, he grew in obedience. That the Son of God, think about this, the Son of God was growing in obedience. That the Son of God was growing in holiness. That's what it means that he was growing in favor with God. Well, how could the eternal Son of God, perfect in being, increase in favor with God? 
This, as we said, is the mystery. Although in His divine nature, Jesus was absolutely and unchangeably perfect in holiness. In His human nature, Jesus grew in holiness. And what Luke is telling us here in the outskirts of this story is that He grew in holiness in His humanity with each stage of His life. He knew what it meant to be an obedient three-year-old. And he knew what it meant to be an obedient 30-year-old. And here in this particular story, he knew what it meant to be an obedient 12-year-old. Not only to his Father in heaven, but also to his parents here on earth. Verse 51, look with me. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus was sanctifying every period every stage, every phase of our humanity. Jesus had to learn obedience through every stage in life in order to redeem His people who have lived sinfully at every stage in their lives. Is that not true of us? When the writer of Hebrews tells us that He saves us to the uttermost, He means it. You see, if we are to look at ourselves, what we need is not just holiness, but we need human holiness. The holiness of any other being, the holiness of angels, for example, will not suffice. If we are to be holy, that holiness must be produced in our humanity. And this is what Christ accomplished for you and for me, Christian. And what we need is not only our bodies to be sanctified, but our minds to be sanctified. This doesn't just happen on our own. God doesn't merely justify us and then leave us to sanctify ourselves. That's not the gospel. No, our sanctification must be bought. Our sanctification must be purchased. But not only blood-bought and purchased, but it needs to be, before all that, lived out. It needs to be lived out by the one who grew in holiness. By the one who grew in favor with God. And that is what Christ did in His life. And to His death on the cross as the perfectly holy one. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness. And He doesn't end there. He says also, and sanctification and redemption. You see, Jesus Christ underwent from His birth to his childhood, to his teenage years, to his adulthood, to his death. For every part and for every stage of humanity, he underwent a process of sanctification for his people. He did so in order to become the source of that holiness that God requires from you and from me. You see, his sanctification becomes our sanctification. His sanctification secures all of our sanctification 
until it's perfection and glory. His growing becomes my growing. His learning becomes my learning. His obedience becomes my obedience. His increasing favor with God becomes mine. The reason why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ is because he has done it. Jesus in John 17, 9 said, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified. You know, I don't think we can simply gloss over what Luke tells us here. That he increased That he increased in favor with God. How is it that the eternal Son of God increased in favor with his heavenly Father? I believe it to be one of the most stunning statements in Scripture. For the second person of the Godhead who had enjoyed the fellowship of the Father from eternity past, yet increased in favor with him. And that increase occurred throughout those 33 years of his life on earth. And as time went on, as time went on, he faced, Jesus faced more severe opposition and increasingly harder tests. And his obedience expanded into them. And you see, at the end of the day, through every opposition, through every test, he was faithful. He grew in faithfulness. Though he had never sinned. The Garden of Gethsemane was a more difficult of a test than the temptations he experienced in the wilderness of Judea. And so his growth in favor with God, it continued and it continued. That favor with God throughout his life increased and it increased. And we've been speaking about the mystery of the incarnation. But here was the mystery of the cross. That favor with God, that favor with God increased and increased right up to the day when in obedience to his father, the son was willing to go to the cross of shame and condemnation and judgment, whereby receiving the father's wrath, you remember he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there he took the father's divine hatred over sin. And part of the mystery is that while beating and bruising his son on the cross, his favor didn't cease. But rather his favor, the father's favor on the son came to its highest point. How do you explain that? It's because the one who cried out in the agony of being forsaken was at the same time delighting in doing the Father's will. You see, both are true. Both are true. What a Savior we have, beloved, in the person of Jesus. Non-Christian, this is the Savior you need. How is it that you are neglecting so so great of a salvation? Come to Him to save you. And He will save you to Him who is truly God and truly man. Let's pray together. Holy God, our Father, 
We thank you for sending down to us your only begotten Son, your eternally begotten Son, in the person of Jesus Christ. That he has come to us both in the fullness of deity and in the fullness of our humanity and not just a part of it. For coming down to us and living what you required every step of the way, sanctifying us completely in order to save us entirely. We confess that our wonder of him is weak, that our worship of him is at times waning. We possess hearts that are stale and we live lives that are cold and powerless. We ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us, renew us and revive us. May Christ increase and we decrease. Greater love we pray for Christ. Give us faith to see that he is fairer and that he shines brighter, that he is our beautiful Savior, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. Amen.